Welcome to Neighborhood Church. To learn more about who we are as a community or to financially support Neighborhood, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. All right. I need club music to come up when I talk every time. I feel like a better person. All right. Oh, I got to be on the camera. I forgot the camera. All right. Well, uh, Today, we are going to be um, having a great uh, conversation. I was planning on, um, after the, um, the terrorist attack in uh, Israel, I was going to give a talk on our series called Reimagining. It was going to be about reimagining hell and how we don't need some uh, external place somewhere at some time, at some place that brings upon hellish things um, when there's hellish things happening all around us and within. And as I was getting ready to, like, like think through how do I want to approach it, I'm like, I could spend 40 hours researching this. Uh, instead, I thought of my friend Diana. And my friend Diana, who I've known for over 20 years, uh, I did the math today, um, that's a long time, um, that this is her, like, lived experience. Um, Diana is a peacekeeper. She is a renowned author. She's a hip within wild podcaster now. Uh, she speaks uh, around the globe all about peacekeeping. And here's the thing about peacekeeping. Most people I talk to, and we talk about uh, peacekeeping, about being a Jesus-looking person, big fans of it. Everyone wants to do it. They're like, of course I want to move in peace. Of course I want to bring peace. We all want to do it until it costs us something. Because violence is ingrained in our system, is ingrained in our culture. It's, in, it's embodied within us. And we use violence to get something we want, get something we, we feel that we have earned or that uh, we deserve, right? And when you come in contact, you come close to that violence within you, and you choose to lose, you choose to take a step back, that costs a lot. Culture, we don't really like losing. And what Diana's talking about is not just some nice ideas. This is Diana's lived experience. She has the receipts. Um, she'll be sharing her story, but Diana has uh, been in war situations. She has seen hellish things, and Diana still shows up as a peacemaker. So as she shares her story, some of it will be funny, um, but a lot of it's going to be uh, traced with trauma, with tears, with anger, and deep, deep love. And so I ask that you listen humbly and openly as someone who's inviting you into her space. At the end, we will have a question and answer time um, where um, I, on my, my um, cell phone will be up there, and you can text it if you don't want to. Some, sometimes people feel like they can't process out loud, and so you can text me. If you are watching online, to the millions of people watching online, um, you can um, leave uh, comments um, once we get the Q&A time, and I'll be reading the comments to answer them. Or if you're here, if you're one of the millions of people here in person, you can also, um, you can ask. So please join me in welcoming up Diana. Come on up, friend. Good morning, good morning, everybody. And yes, online, there are millions of people here. <laughs> and you are missing out. You are missing out. Beautiful, beautiful people. Um, so I did want to say that I am really honored to be here with you. And I am grateful um, that Chris and this whole community is willing 
to A, talk about war, because we're going to talk about war and we're going to talk about peace. But I feel like it is a place that none of us, traditionally, if you grew up in the church, um, you may have heard about war, but you did not hear about Jesus as a peacemaker. And so I just want to say um, there's a place for you in this story, and Jesus is at the center of the story. So if you will um, just be here and let, let your emotions be here, but also this is a story that you probably is not yours. So thank you for honoring that and respecting that. Awesome. Okay, I'm really glad you're here. Um, so why don't you start out, Diana? Please, like, share with us. Uh, uh, we have your pictures up there as well. And so oh, <laughs> you want to go look at yourself? Look at me up there. <laughs> Good times. Yeah, yeah. Um, why don't you share, like, uh, uh, some of your, um, how you got here as a peacemaker? So I got here because I am a war maker. And if that sounds a little crazy, I would say that our, I'm a third generation army veteran. And so our family tree is basically an American flag. And that is the culture that I grew up in. A little small Baptist church up in uh, Grand Rapids. Anybody hear of that? No, nobody. No one wants to admit nobody. they're from Grand Rapids. Um, so I grew up in a faith and a culture and a family that was definitely, I didn't know there was anything different than God, guns, and country. Um, so when I was 23, I got, I was called up. I was in the Army National Guard paying for school. I was at the end of my six-year enlistment, and that's when 9-11 um, happened. And I knew that because I was in the military, this was probably going to change my life. But nobody knew how it would change so many of our lives. So I got called up, and I was deployed as part of the preemptive strike, where the U.S. didn't declare war, but they pushed 100,000 soldiers into Iraq undercover at night. <laughs> and I was one of those. And so we had, I was a combat medic, and when we had been there like a week, we were getting ready to move into enemy territory. And so the night before, we were going to go on our convoy. We were in this tent. It's like a million degrees um, because that is what the desert is at all times. <laughs> Come from Minnesota, it was still, <laughs> still a shock. So we're in this hot, sweaty tent. And the sergeant up front was giving us our marching orders. And at the very end of it, he had said, he said, hey, it's an enemy tactic to push little Iraqi kids in front of American convoys in order to stop the truck at the front so that they could attack soldiers at the rear. And he's like, and I hope you understand your duty to keep the convoy rolling at all costs tomorrow. And if you're not able to do your duty, raise your hand right now and identify yourself. And in that minute, I was putting together what he was saying. And before my chest is pumping, I don't, you know, like, is he, before I could figure out what I was going to do and what he was saying and what I was being required to do and if I would do it or not, um, he said, dismissed. And everybody piled out of the tent. But what I knew was I had eight hours before we left at 4 a.m. the next morning to make a decision. And I remember laying on my bunk and praying the awesomest prayer, oh God, oh God, oh God, <laughs> you know, help. Be 
because I knew everything that I believed was good said that this was a necessary evil. I had signed up. Um, this is what soldiers did. You got to take a life to save a life. And if we did it and we're America, it was for God. Like everything I knew agreed with this, but something in me was just pushing back. And I thought, I, I know it's supposed to be okay, but I don't, I don't think I can run over a child. Like between me, God, everybody, I don't know. Like this isn't, I don't know that I can do this. I remember middle of the night with these soggy little tears trying to be like really quiet about it because nobody wants someone crying in their combat tent, <laughs> you know? You gotta be chill about this stuff. Uh, I remember just tears going down my face and I remember hearing this voice come out of nowhere and it said, but I love them, Diana. I love them too. And in a minute, it just broke. Like I just, it was like electricity, like it felt like relief. And it felt like that was the truest true thing that God was telling me. And in that minute, I knew that no matter what my country required of me, no matter what the consequence was, that my loyalty was to a God of love. And I was going to be part of the kingdom of life, and I could never be part of death. So whether I, I would jump in front of anybody for a bullet, but I would not take a life. Um... But I still had to get up the next day. So this is like the first time, like, I don't know why I had to go to a war to hear the God of love tell me that um, I was called to love my enemies. And that meant I couldn't kill even to save my life, even if I was agreed to or if it was for my country. And I don't know why those simple things are. I, I grew up hearing all about God is love. I knew the Ten Commandments, um, but I just couldn't put it together until that minute. And so um, the next picture, if you flick to it, Chris, is little kids that I saw the next day running past my convoy. And no, nobody pushed them in front of them, so I didn't have to make that decision. But when I saw them running after us, I was like, oh, these are the people that God loves, that he is caring for their future, their life, and their children just as carefully as he's cradling my future and my life. Um, so that is, that's how I, that's how I laid down my weapon in the middle of a war. Um, God just told me to do it, and I didn't have any other choice, and, um, but ultimately, when I decided to take the bullets out of my weapon and give my life, because every soldier believes in peace, and they believe you go to war to get peace, um, but I was going to do it with sacrifice, the way that Jesus calls us to do it. Um, once I laid down my weapon and took out my bullets and knew that anytime, anywhere, I was going to interrupt violence and I was going to be on the side of life, um, it was the first time that I felt a freedom, like a freedom I didn't know was possible. It was the first time I woke up without my stomach being full of knots. Um, and even when I came back from Iraq, knowing I was a peacemaker but nobody else knew it, and I couldn't really tell anybody because <laughs> we were like hard in the middle of the war and the nationalism and like... I could not tell anybody. Like, the church I was going to at the time asked me to do a praise report after my 397 days in combat. Um, I still felt a freedom that if I, if God could change how I saw my enemies, I have people I was told were my enemies on the battlefield of Iraq War, it could change how I lived here, and it did. Changed my life forever. Um, and that's what I want to talk about. Like, that's why when we look at war, we also need to be 
asking ourselves about peace and also the old Matthew thing about uh, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. I think that's the invitation here. So that's a little bit of background, Chris. I love it that you use the Bible. That's good. Come on, Baptist. <laughs> it's what we do. I usually tell speakers, I get a lot of them. I'm like, you don't have to reference the Bible if you don't want to. We're not that kind of church. So I'm glad. You, you win. You win. All right. Um, before we move on, can you share a little bit about um, your experience in, uh, was it in Palestine, in, the, in Gaza? Yeah. So one thing just to tell you, I'm only up here because I've experienced war, and I know what it feels like to have a bomb go off in your body, and it sucks your breath out and bullets. So I'm here because I don't think anybody on planet Earth should ever have to experience that terror. It is always wrong, and it always takes from us. So I came back from Iraq as a war veteran and as a peacemaker, and then I also decided I would go to Iran and also Palestine and Israel. So that's why I'm talking to you about Palestine and Israel. I won't talk about it if I have not been there and felt the violence myself. Okay. So um, many of us have uh, seen the images that have come out. Um, and even if you haven't seen them, you've probably heard about it, right? Uh, and when you hear about them, you conjure up your own images of what you could think. And uh, war and those images demand feelings. But many of us, war is a nameless, faceless thing, right? Maybe we played war as a kid. Maybe we played video games. But when you see those horrific things, you see what bullets and bombs do to image bearers of God. It demands a feeling, but we don't know what to do with those feelings. So for some, it makes us feel like we have to choose a side because then we can rationalize or justify more violence. Sometimes it brings out violence in us, right? We don't know what to do, so we get angry or we get, we become violent in other ways. So as a peacemaker, how, how do we process those feelings and what do we do with those feelings? Sure, and I think that it is, one, just know that it's normal. If you weren't having feelings when you're watching what's happening in Gaza and Israel right now, that would be a problem. <laughs> so I think the first thing I think that we really need to do is, one, just pause when you feel that feeling. Because I think we feel it and then we've got to do something. So either we've got to pick a side, we've got to um, do violence ourselves um, in retribution and vengeance. There's just something that, that tells us um, that's how we get out of pain and that's how we get out of grief. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little story about how this played out. So I came back from war and then I had two little boys. And how do you know what violence does to people after seeing it. And then you see these two little kids, right? And so I knew I needed to raise them differently um, and to see violence and respond to it differently. So they were like preschoolers. I will keep them, I will not name who did what in this situation. <laughs> um, but they, they were preschoolers. And anyways, one of them, um, I hear, 
all of a sudden screams, and the other one has a big stick in its hand. And I can totally tell one of my kids just walloped the other one. Um, and anyways, I remember when I looked and saw it, like, I was enraged. I'm looking at my cute little son, but all I wanted to do was run over there, grab the stick out of his hand, and, like, lead him the ride at. But in a flash, I remembered, I looked over, and I saw my other son, who's, like, on the ground, crying and wounded and hurt. And what I knew is that when violence happens, our reaction is always to go to the person who's causing it and do something to them. But we are forgetting to center the person who is the victim of the violence, the person who the violence was done to. And so what I know is that that instinct, though it is our instinct, what I had a choice in that moment. I was either gonna go to the thing that had my strongest feeling, which was to like go to grab the stick out of my kid's hand, or I was actually gonna go scoop up my son who had gotten hit, and I was gonna comfort him, and I was gonna tell him, fine, and maybe needs a Band-Aid, I was gonna tell him, nobody should ever hurt you. And I'm gonna tell him that I will always take care of him. And so, and then also, then my husband <laughs> grabbed the other one and put him on his knee and is like, do you know why you can't hit your brother? He's like, no, <laughs> you know? And he's like, because your brother is God's son. That's why, and God loves him. And he's like, okay, you know. But what we, what I, what changed being a peacemaker is that I had to let go of that instinct to somehow follow that thing that wants to like take the stick out and like punish somebody almost because it was taken away from the person who needed to be loved to be loved and cared for first. And so that has changed how I parent, and it also changed how I decided um, to show up in middle of violence. I would always center the person who is on the receiving end of violence, and they always deserve to be cared for first. And that second part, that's our messy human part. And so also, there's this old school Bible verse called Micah 6.8, which says that we are supposed to do justice and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. So as a peacemaker, we have to show up for the people that are wounded, and we have to choose mercy. And honestly, trust that that vengeance cycle, that tit for tat, the eye for an eye, Jesus came to change that. He said no more. And so we have to love mercy, and we also have to trust that there will be a healing and a putting together that is beyond us, that we are not the just judge. Like if we want to execute justice on each other, we do not love each other the way that God does, and we will always cause more harm and hurt, and we can't heal each other. That is just the facts. Um, so that is, I think, one, feel your feelings. That feeling that you feel, I think, is us responding to violence that God is heartbroken and enraged when he sees some of his children killing, bombing, harming each other. So I think we're, go ahead and feel that one, but know that that feeling we feel, that rage, that is against the violence. That the violence is the enemy, never the person. Because the person is 
is the person that as a parent, you love both your kids. You're not going to say, well, you did something wrong, you're done. Never, it is an unconditional love that does not change. The action, always wrong. Um, and I think we need to change that. And even in the way our justice system looks at things, um, we think we can execute justice by executing people. That is the old thing that only causes more harm and puts more death in our future and harms our kids. So we do have, I think the challenge is there. I think we have to choose to always make violence the enemy. And also, when I was a kid, people used in church, they used to talk about Satan or the enemy or the kingdom of darkness. But the, the markers of that kingdom was Satan or you could also say, like, anything that sets itself up against love, that God is love. You could say lies, kills, and destroys. So violence lies to us, always tells us that we deserve and are entitled to make someone else pay. Violence lies to us. Violence kills, always, whether it is word or deed or a whole country, it kills. And lastly, violence is destructive. It destroys our bond between us. It destroys the fact that we're family, we're connected, and it also destroys our future. Because whatever violence we do, now our kids are enemies. Like, I cannot raise my sons to kill another woman's son. Because put in whatever the reason is. Like, it destroys our brotherhood and puts bitterness in our future. So I think that violence is a thing that we have to always speak up against and always um, not tolerate and refuse to allow people to be the enemy. Let them be gods and let them, let there be redemption, let there be something for them, but we just have to take a step back from seeing them as the enemy. Okay, I got a very nuanced question that I'm glad you're answering instead of me. Um, in my conversations with people, when they will um, choose a side, right, regardless of what side it is, um, and when I give more of a nuanced approach, right, of like violence is the enemy, um, because we live in such a binary culture, you can either be one, and if you're for one, then you're automatically against the other. Yeah. Um, as a p and you hit on it, but I just want to like thread it a little bit more. H how do we how do we respond when we feel the pressure to pick a side? And and how how do you answer that? How do you engage with that? The the binary us versus them, especially in time right now where you, it feels I don't know about you, but there's pressure at at points, especially online, right? Nameless, faceless, behind the computer, yeah. um, to speak out or for. So your question is, how do you avoid the binary, or how do you avoid feeling like you have to choose, or people are going to judge you or come after you? Uh, I, I would say, as, as a peacemaker, when you feel that pressure, um, how do you move forward with it? Like, how do you re respond? I in word, but also in practicality. Because you, you did mention, like, we're going to let violence be the enemy instead of that country, yeah. right? So can you just flush that out just a little bit more? of how we can practically do that, or how you practically do that? Uh, yes. So at the whole end of this, we're going to have three really practical tips. One you can do locally, one you can do globally. Um, but I do think that, one, I always look for a power differential. Hmm. Like, 
most things cannot happen without a really significant imbalance of power. And I think we have to acknowledge when one group has way less power to protect themselves. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to have you bump through. The next four pictures on here are of a Palestinian refugee camp. And the reason I brought these photos today is because this is probably a story that you have not heard. And I didn't. Before I had been to Israel and Palestine, I didn't really know what Palestinian people were. I didn't understand the dynamic. I had really been told the Holy Land is this fabled place where God is king and all things beautiful are happening, um, which is not the case. So I think we have to allow there to be two stories because there are two stories and acknowledge the violence done. Um, part of the game changer for me was noticing that I was not the good guy. Because if I was the good guy, then I didn't even have to look at someone else's story. They were just lumped in as the bad guys. Easy peasy. But when I saw people wearing my uniform doing violent things that were illegal and war crimes, I had a choice. I could either say, well, we're mostly the good guys, and if they're wearing that uniform out of my team, then it has to be for the better good. And you kind of just give it a pass. Um, or you have to decide that if it's wrong for them to do, it's wrong for me to do, and you hold yourself to that same standard, which is how I think we can, um, and, and let's just be honest, America has always really championed Israel, and because of that, we may not have been hearing the whole story. It was certainly true in my case. I really had no idea there was more of a different story, and I couldn't quite say why we were so connected to Israel and why we needed them to always win, but I felt it, I knew it, I was on Team Israel, until I went to Palestine into a refugee camp right outside of Bethlehem and saw what like, really triggered me as a veteran. I was like, this place feels like a war. This is the first time I had had a weapon shoved in my face at a checkpoint since the Iraq war, since a combat zone. Everything about it, like, was a war zone. And I saw people put in camps. There's 5,000 people in this refugee camp called Ada, right inside Bethlehem. And there's two schools and no medical care. And people in that camp, Palestinians, even if they have Israeli citizenship because they live there, they are not free to go get medical care. They have to get a written pass, which is all the same stuff that happened in Iraq we had. Um, checkpoints, we couldn't get through, people always were shoving a gun in your face, um, getting to healthcare was a big deal. So what I saw there changed the story from what I knew. And I had to admit that even though I had been told Israel as a government was doing all the right things, I had to look at people who were put into camps with razor wire and they didn't have electricity and they didn't have water and um, they were like when I was there, there was a 12-year-old boy who was shot by an Israeli sniper in a guard tower in the refugee camp. He's 13. Um, you can't explain that away. You can't say, well, I'm sure it was okay. And so I think we have to start to hear that violence anywhere is always wrong, even when it's on somebody who you traditionally side with, trust, find way more affinity to their story, um, it's our own integrity that is on the line when we can't admit that when you jail people 
put them in camps. They've been in refugee camps since 1948. Um, these are generations of people who are being treated less than people. And that matters. And I, when I went, I had to also hold two things in my hands. The story of what my country has always told me about Israel as a government and as a place and like kind of the like mythology around it, especially being Baptist. Um, we had a lot going on with Israel. Um, but I also had to hold the story of violence against the Palestinians and oppression that was happening. And how I accepted that had a lot to do with me. And I'm not sure where this is going to come in the talk, so I'm just going to say it right now. But we, as Americans, can export violence to this conflict. And we have been doing it. Um, I checked in with my friend at the mosque here in Duluth because in the past couple years, I've only been into two places that worship that have to have an armed guard when they worship on high holy days, or they have to chain link their front door while they worship because they're afraid of their neighbors here in Duluth coming to do violence to them. So the two places that do that is Temple Israel. They hire security guards because they do not feel safe here in Duluth because of anti-Semitism. And then uh, the mosque. When we went in there um, for something, I was like, why do you have like 27 locks and a big chain closing your front doors? And they're like, well, it's for safety. And I was like, so you, like, they don't feel safe to just like worship? Like their neighbors in Duluth are worried? And they're like, yes. Um, and so as a Christian, I felt a huge privilege. I don't, I've never worshipped where I've been worried that my neighbors in Duluth would come and harm me while I was worshipping. So the mosque got graffitied last week. So what does a mosque in Duluth have anything to do with uh, Israel and Gaza? People are taking their violence out on them. People are harming them. People are scaring them. Um, and we have to own that locally. That what's happening there, our, how we talk about it, is causing violence against our neighbors here in Duluth, who are Muslim and Jewish. And, and I'd say, when you live in that binary world and you're like, I am pro this team, it rationalizes. It helps you sleep at night, right? Yeah. You don't have to process grief, and then you can turn a blind eye to the humanity of the other person, and we can just rationalize and justify any kind of violence. And, and, for, and that's privilege, right? And I think once you acknowledge that, once you're aware of that, like, oh, I do feel that pressure, but I can move, I can tell a better story. Yeah. Um, okay, last question uh, before we get to Q&A. Um, you, you said that you have some tips about... I do. But before we do that... Um, I want to shamelessly plug, because you, you, you tell your story, and I've read your book. Um, where can people learn more about your story? Like, where, where can they find your book? Where is this podcast? Because your stories are wonderful, and I just don't want to miss out on the chance for people to hear more. Yeah, so please buy my book. <laughs> Not because I, I desperately I need you to buy my book, but because people have said including my cute little partner over there, it changes how they see a group that they have always felt suspicious about or seen as other or felt like is violent or the problem. So I've had Christians, Muslims, Jewish folks, um, pastors, 
we and count. We count. Uh, and Iraq War veterans all read it, and they all felt like they felt like change, like something about how they see themselves and a group that they did not hold much for changed, and they now felt like they wanted to, they felt like they could or even wanted to show up and love in their communities and be different. Like, they felt like they could change the world. So I'm only telling you this book, most people read it in three days, will make you know that you have a place at the peacemaking table, and what you do today is changing what happens tomorrow. And I think we desperately need to know that we are part of this story. We are not Judge Judy who just tells people, yes, no, agree, don't agree. That's not who we are. We are people of hope, and we are part of this story. So that's why I would say read the book. And what's the book? It's called, it's called Waging Peace. Okay. And where, uh, where can they find your podcast? What's the name of it? It's called, wait for it, The Waging Peace Podcast. <laughs> also... When you look for it, it says there aren't any other ones like it. So it is, I think we need to hear stories of people who are waging peace in their regular lives. So I interview a mom in Indiana, a rapper from LA, a poet from Brooklyn, um, a comedian from Mississippi. <laughs> You're gonna love her. <laughs> um, but I think that we need to know that we have the power to change things exactly who you are. You don't have to be loud, you don't have to be quiet, you don't have to be an activist, like who God made you to be. We are here for right now, and it matters what we do. Um, and I also, you can follow me on Instagram, but I put out when things happen, I tend to think that it's always really practical. So if you go to my um, Instagram page, there's three ways that we as peacemakers and Christians can stop adding violence to the conflict right now. Okay. And also as parents, because I really am into that, too. Well, that's good. That's positive. Uh, my teenage son, I, he told me the other day that he was raised in an aggressively nonviolent household. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I don't want to ask my kids. I don't know that. if it was a positive or not. <laughs> I think he felt like he was a little, I don't know. But I was like, how can I feel so, like, proud and humiliated at the same time? We are violent about our nonviolence, yes. <laughs> um, okay, do you want to share your locally and globally tips? Well, if Nikki throws it up there, yes, but I can't really read it from here. Okay, we're just going to go rogue here. So number one, people are not their governments. Refuse to accept this narrative. If we don't want the world to judge us by our government's actions or our government's violence, refuse to do that to the Palestinians or Israeli people. All right, next one. Uh, listen before you speak. If you don't know the history from a Palestinian perspective and an Israeli, your opinion can be gasoline on a fire. So listen before you speak. And then the last one. Um, this one is going to be a real challenge for if you're breathing in an American. Um, war is not holy. Refuse to accept the narrative that God is on someone's side. That creates more violence, and our history will show that. So those are three practical ways. Um, but the other, that's, so locally, I would say, um, I made a card and baked some bread and brought it to Temple Israel and the mosque and just said, hey, um, we are thinking of you. And so if it works for your next-door neighbor, it also works for who is on the receiving end of this violence. 
and of these narratives. So you can simply do that. You can Google their addresses. Um, they're right here in Duluth. And then also you can call and tell your representatives and speak up that says we need an immediate ceasefire. Um, that's just so the killing stops and people can take care of their wounded so kids can get medical care, so um, more people can live, so that the hostages can get negotiated back. Like We just need to be on the side of life. And so nationally, you can just call and tell our representative of Minnesota that like we want an immediate ceasefire. Sweet, thank you. All right, you ready for question and answer? Oh yeah. Uh, Nikki, you wanna throw the last slide up there? Um, you guys are about to get my personal cell number. You're welcome in advance. You can uh, talk and text with me anytime you'd like. Give him, you guys. Just Gif go all him the way right to the end, now. Nikki. It's the very last one. Um, so um, those who are online, um, you can start throwing up your questions uh, in the comments, and you can text me the question. Oh, man, I probably put the wrong one up. All right, my cell number is 218-390-2946, if you'd like. Um, so uh, does anyone have any questions for Diana? All you have to do is raise your hand. Cody. Before you answer, Diana, can you repeat the question so people online can hear? Yes. So we got a really great question by Cody, and you said, you understand putting the victim first, but don't we need someone to stop people doing violence? And I think that's a great question. And so there's two parts to that. I think, yes. You know, when you take the stick out of someone's hand, that is taking the violence out of their hand. And also when you put people... Um, you know, when you put people in jail, you're taking them, you're limiting, you're stopping their violence against other people. So I think it's the both and. And there's a big difference between stopping people um, and then just killing people with big bombs um, like they're doing in Gaza right now. Like they're looking at um, taking out millions of people. And so that is retaliatory that isn't necessarily the way that we stop violence. So I, I do wanna say, like, I feel like people oftentimes go to this, they're like, well, you know, war makes sense, peace seems suspect. <laughs> um, only because war is what we know, yeah. and peace takes a lot more work. And I was trained to wage war, and I also think I use those same skills to wage peace. So we can teach people to wage war, but we can also learn to wage peace. And that means that we interrupt violence and we stop it, but our first instinct can't always be, just kill them. Um, we're trying that, and it has not made the world any safer. And it's not making our schools safer, and it's not making um, the way that we interact as countries safer. So I do always think it's easier for people to go to the extreme, but I'm like, guess what? First things first, just try it. Just try following Jesus by disarming yourself of your right to violence. And if it's too radical to do that, like, just say, I'm gonna practice it as a spiritual discipline for like a week, or fast from violence for a month or a year. Like, there is a reason that Jesus calls us to nonviolence. There's a reason, and I think it's because the world tells us we can't live without war, and Jesus tells us, until we really lay it down, we might not ever truly live. 
because Jesus came to give us life and life in abundance. So I'm saying hold those two things, but try the first one because it will create a new narrative between us and our neighbors right here in Duluth and our neighbors um, across the world right now. Sweet, thank you. Anyone else have a question for Diana? Yeah, fast from violence. I did. So sometimes I think, like, I don't want to get in people's theology. I really don't think that's the reason why we have so many bad things in our world. In my personal case, it was that I had a lack of love for other people, that I saw other people as collateral damage or disposable or outside of my jurisdiction to love because they weren't exactly who my culture said to care about. So she's asking, what does fast from violence? So in some ways I tell people, just fast from it because, you know, People don't want to give up something that has really been part of their culture, part of their narrative, part of their country, part of even being good people. So when I say fast from it, decide for a certain amount of time that you are going to commit to disarming yourself of your right to violence. So that means that in your head, when you see something and you're like, oh, you in your head <coughs> say, I refuse to harm to make this right. So it's the same thing we're teaching our kids, that there will be conflict and there will be issues. And how we do that is we're not going to punch back. We will fix this without violence. So I think it is a commitment. And then in a practical way, you tell yourself that and then you do that. So that means you can't maybe champion bombing a whole country. If you commit right now to fast from violence as a way to um, make yourself safe or make your religion stronger or fix things. Um, and I would just sit with that. There's multiple different ways. Um, and I do put out some resources on how, how do you do that? Because I think we haven't been given that invitation. We've been told to pick a side. We've been told what to think. We've been told what to do. But if we want something different, we're going to have to be different. So that's my two cents can on starting there as a start point. Can I add to that? I'd say for, um, and I'm not blanketing all men and that there's no women in this as well, but for me, I realize violence could come out in how I use my body. I might not punch someone, but I might like power up. I might hit a wall. I might um, use my words. Um, and so learning how to fast from violence was recognizing what violent things do I do in nature or in my words and how I use my body. So that's good. Um, any other questions for Diana? And if you're watching online, you can throw it up in the comments. I have it open. Okay, last chance. The Vikings don't play for another 45 minutes, guys. You got time. Sarah. <laughs> I knew that was going to come up. So <laughs> funny, right? Because, like, we were just talking about it on the, on the drive here. And Can you repeat the question? Repeat the question. Oh, so the question is, what does an aggressively nonviolent household look like? And I did ask my 16-year-old. I'm like, what do you mean about that? You know, um... And so, 
There are some stories in my book, if you want to hear how that really played out, good and bad. Um, But what it really looks like is that I didn't, we decided that we were always going to tell them that the other person um, has just as much value as they do, even when their actions are wrong. Um, So actions, not people. And so I read this study that was saying, can parents really teach their kids nonviolence, and does it actually change kids? Does it help at all? Well, out of 5,000 middle school students, the answer is yes. If you start teaching your kids, and they chose middle schoolers because that's when aggression um, typically ramps up for boys and girls. That's when they actually have and do more aggressive behavior. So they found out that if parents told their kids that, yes, there's conflict, and yes, you can figure it out with nonviolence instead of violence, that it actually did change kids' behavior. Um, So I think repeating that to kids and persisting in that really does make a change. And also my 16-year-old told me that on the way here, he was like, "Uh, you never let me get away with violence. <laughs> what did you say, Bridget? I don't know. You were like, like, yeah, you always stopped it when I would do something. And I was like, yes. So that is also part of it. Not just saying um, there's a different way to fix this and we won't do this, but also interrupting it. Anytime, anywhere, he was like, yeah, you never let us hit each other or call each other names. And I was like, yes, that is interrupting um, when somebody uses words or, you know, their actions to really um, harm another person. So always interrupt it, and then always continue to say, like, we can and we will address what happened to you without, you know, doing the same thing back. And one of the bigger questions I've also heard, because I do some work with abolishing the death penalty, is can we resist violence without mirroring that same violence? And I think that's a really important question when we choose to... um, parent our kids and be in relationship with each other. Can we stand up against violence and not do the, not do the exact same thing in retaliation for that? Any other questions? Don't we all, Mike? Don't we all? So his question is, how do we actually do this, Diana? Come on. (laughs) I agree, Mike. Great question. Um, And he mentioned a timeline. And I think the timeline is less important than the action. So it doesn't really help us when we say, I'm not going to do this anymore. We actually have to say what we are going to do. And I think that when we take action as um, peacemakers and interrupt violence, 
that's how our brains get rewired. That's where we're actually living into um, this new way that Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. So I would say commit to taking one action a week. That an easy way to do it, because I think we're in a very um, binary culture, you can just take like Jesus's thing of like, he says, I call it, for those who are ready to hear the truth, love your enemies. So I would just say, write down, love my enemies. <laughs> and so whoever comes to mind for you, do one thing that week on behalf of their flourishing and their thriving. I will always say center the person who's on the other end of this stuff. So I would say take one action every single week that will put you in a place that you are speaking up against violence or you're caring for somebody who's the victim of violence or someone who you see as the enemy, like you just cannot see anything good for them. Um, take one action that support that is investing in their good. And that whole like, you know, give someone a drink of water, give somebody this. Um, care about it. But you can always email me too because I feel like sometimes you just need someone to talk through with it that says, hey, I want to do this, but I'm super scared or I actually don't know how much I want to do this. Um, but I'd commit to one thing this week to do on behalf and just tell yourself, God, I want to love my enemies. And then wait to see one thing come up and commit to doing it because also with kids like we have to actually do things we have to live the life we want we can't just say what we aren't we have to actually be people that's great okay um i just bring a wrap it up because i think downstairs it's turned into uh, a prison so <laughs> those kids are probably wanting to get out but uh before before we wrap up we have diana a round of applause please that was that was so good diana um and i just want to say again when, when I asked Diana to speak, she's like, well, you know, you can give a message. And I'm like, it's more than filling a time. You have, you've done this work for decades. So 20 years. 20 years. So just thank you for um, remaining curious, um, remaining soft to the gospel, and showing up in love. It makes a difference. So thank you for sharing with us today. Um, we are, yeah, why not clap more? That's good. Thank All right. You. So Come on, guys. Give it up. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, to repeat, Diana, we're going to put some music on to wrap up, but repeat Diana's words. Please buy her book. <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. I have one more ask of you. Uh-oh. If you, I bumped into some people who are like, well, I don't know when these things are happening, or I, I would like to do something, but I actually never hear about it. Um, email me, because I have put people's names together who have raised their hand and said, I'm interested or I want to do good in my community. And it's called the Waging Peace Project, and I'll just send out an email and let you know local events and local things that are waging peace. And what's so. the website? Um, DianaOsterich.com. DianaOsterich.com. Okay. Thanks, friends.